0: All right, ready?
1: Yeah, let's go. All
0: right. Welcome to the Lalo Degosh podcast. I'm here with Graham Wood. Graham Wood is a journalist who has written for The New Yorker. The American Scholar, The New Republic, Bloomberg uh, Business Week, The Wall Street Journal, and more. He is a contributing editor for The Atlantic, and in March 2015, he wrote an article that went viral called What ISIS Really Wants. Subsequently, in 2016, he wrote the book The Way of the Strangers, Encounters with the Islamic State. I read the article uh, from 2015. It's not an article, it's pretty much a short book. (laughs) And it's excellent. And I cannot say enough good things about the book either. In fact, it almost gives overwhelming amount of great information, historical, theological, and all along the way you get uh, conversations with fundamentalists, or ISIS supporters, or people who have fought with ISIS, um, all kinds of people. And I suggest having a little notebook on the side to write down all the, the details and historical information and terminology. Um, but it was fantastic, and thanks, Graham, for coming on.
1: Thank you, Lola. You, you're too kind.
0: Um, so usually on my podcast, I really like to get a sense of the person I'm speaking to um, I There's there's not really almost any information about yourself in your book, and you, most of your conversations start off very quick about your encounters with ISIS. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about yourself.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I, I'm a Canadian and an American, uh, Canadian descent, born in the United States. Uh, I was educated mostly in the US and then in, in Cairo at the American University in Cairo. Uh, and after that, I, I have have mostly just been a journalist with a, a quick interlude working for DHL in Iraq uh, and specifically in Mosul. So when ISIS came about, um, some of the geography was very familiar to me. Uh, and for years before that, I had been reporting in Iraq on the U.S. military occupation there uh, and on many other subjects for, as as you've said, a, a bunch of other magazines. But um, ISIS in particular, it really caught my attention because I, I was, I had that, that previous familiarity and in part because of that familiarity was, it was clear that there was something with ISIS that was new. Uh, it wasn't just Al Qaeda. There was, there was a, a whole kind of new mindset, new appeal, new recruiting, um, drive and a, a new project that, that, went way beyond what Al-Qaeda wanted and was, in, in, to my mind, much more interesting. So that, that that takes me, I think, up to the the point where, uh, yeah, where you were first acquainted with my work in, in early 2015.
0: Can I ask you, what is your background as far as languages? Because you, you give little hints here and there that you have a pretty deep knowledge of Arabic. And I think you also say you know some German. I want to get more sense of your because I'm a translator myself and I speak a few languages so I'm very curious uh, about another person's uh, handle on language
1: well my my Arabic is not quite as as uh, fluent uh, as you're selling it as being Um, I you know I I, I get along okay in Arabic uh, I as I say I, I studied in Cairo so I, I picked a lot of Egyptian dialect through that and then I was in Iraq for some time so some Iraqi dialect as well and then beyond that uh, I've um, I, I've studied classical Arabic as well uh, and have spent much of my professional life reporting in the Middle East. So that, that's, that's where the Arabic comes from. Um, but long before that I, I was a huge language nerd. Um, that means, let's see, I, I had in high school I, and before that I had six years of Latin, five years of ancient Greek, um, six years of Spanish. Grew up partially in Texas, so a lot of exposure to Spanish through that. Uh, And then partially from the Canadian side and partially from travel, uh, a a fair bit of French. Um, I was an exchange student in in Italy, so I, I, at one point, was able to speak Italian pretty well. And then I studied German intensively in in college, so I got that. Traveled a lot in Russia, so I I can get around in Russian. Uh, And then... um, I'm leading out the, the uh, year or so of intensive Pashtu and uh, Azerbaijani and Tajik that, that I've done along the way. So, uh, in other words, lots of different languages have, have been in my background. And, and a shocking number of them have proven very useful in, in watching ISIS.
0: I want to ask you a couple of questions about um, some of the th- common commentary that people make about ISIS Not really seeing if there's knowledge behind that or if there's truth behind it. One of the common taglines or talking points that people use a lot is the U.S. created ISIS after a power vacuum was created in Iraq after the invasion. Even though ISIS can be traced back to 1999 about, is there truth to that claim? Would you say there is something to truth that... The United States was partly responsible for the formation of ISIS, or is that very minor?
1: I think people have uh, it's a, it's a heavily politicized claim. You know, anytime mm-hmm. you're looking back in in historical you know, causation, you're you're going to um, reveal more about what you want to see than what reality is. I mean, you, you could say that the United States had a a, a very important contributory role in causing there to be enough chaos in iraq in the 2000s for isis-like things to 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 be created to incubate and then eventually to to kind of join forces in the form of isis Um, on the other hand uh i i think that this is a a very ahistorical claim too because what what isis has been doing is to add uh, a, a modern twist to strains of islamic thought that have existed for a very long time in a minority form within the religion of islam so to say that the united states by something it did in 2003 created something that is again joining a vast stream of thought politics and action that has gone on for 1400 years is i, I, I think it 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 really does reveal more about the interpreter than than, than about history
0: uh, Many terms that are thrown out there a lot are Wahhabism and Salafism. I I was wondering if you could kind of explain those two uh, terms, kind of what what they mean. But my main question about them, because you actually go into them quite deeply in in the book uh, about uh, Wahhabism and, and Salafism. But I also want to know how ISIS felt about those terms. Because I've heard people describe the philosophy of ISIS as well. one analyst I I once heard describe them as being Wahhabi Salafi Islamist extremists. And that just seems (laughs) like a word salad. And it's interesting that there might be some basis that a lot of the extremism around the world, because I've interviewed so many ex-Muslims from all different uh, places around the world. And a lot of them have told me how they have seen their country Islamize into a more fundamentalist state over the last few decades because of the influence of Saudi Arabia. But at the same time, you also uh, speak in the book about how ISIS has a disdain for the Saudi monarchy. So, uh, you know, do they do they adopt uh, Wahhabism as as a ideology that they like, or do are they against it? Is it just Salafism? Where does that uh, where do they fall on these terms, and what do they adopt? What do they reject?
1: Yeah. So y- you're right to start with this terminological question because it's such a mess in yeah. the way that, that that people have spoken of it. So y- you threw out a few terms first of all. Uh, Islamism, Salafism, Wahhabism, and, oh, uh, maybe uh, including
0: there also Jihadism,
1: and Jihadism. There's right. another one. Okay, yeah. so uh, I'll I'll try to take them in turn. Okay. Uh, there, there's no um, there's no there's no real canonical definition of what Islamism is. So I'll do my best to give a definition that encompasses most of what uses you'd, you'd find for it, which is simply the idea that Islam is the answer to political questions. That, that is, if there is some question about how we organize ourselves as a society, we don't look to questions like, uh, what's the distribution of capital? Who owns the means of production? Uh, we don't look to questions like, what's the will of the people? Instead, we centrally look at the question of, what does the religion of Islam tell us to do? and that might then adopt some Marxist or democratic, um, forms. There can be a kind of democratic Islamism or Marxist Islamism, but the idea that Islam is the answer is, is generally the way I would, I would define Islamism. And it it usually just because politics is inherently to some degree coercive. That also means Islam is something not just I voluntarily should do but you should do too. And I'm going to rig the system. So you kind of have to, uh, and maybe you really have to in, in certain forms of Islamism, which we'll get to right now. Mm-hmm. Now, Salafism is a very specific type uh, of uh, uh, practice of Islam mm-hmm. that can be political or not political. And all it means is that the person I- is very uh, intentionally trying to hearken back to the days of the first generations after the Prophet and the Prophet's own generation. So, the the word just means uh, it's part of a phrase, salaf uh, which means the um, the pious forefathers or ancestors. And it's from a, a saying of the Prophet, which which was that my generation is the best, and the generation that comes after mine, and the generation after that. Uh, which, with the implication that once you get far enough away from from the originators of the religion, uh, they kind of lose sight and we, they, you shouldn't hold them up as models. So mm-hmm. Salafis, whether political or not, will say, we need to look at the practices of those pious ancestors and replicate them. So y- you find them doing things like replicating their dress, their names, uh, the Arabic that they speak. So... Uh, Salafis will will, will make a, a real fetish of not speaking, say, Egyptian Arabic or Iraqi Arabic, but only speaking classical Arabic, the, as much as possible, the language of the Quran and and of of uh, the intellectual life of Islam for for uh, all the generations that have come since. So that's that's Salafism. Um, Wahhabism uh, is a strain of Salafism uh, that uh, in in a form that that was practiced by Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab in the 18th century in central Saudi Arabia, and he was a great consolidator. He was a cleric and uh, a, a fan of the writings of, of Ibn Taymiyyah, who is uh, a it's kind of like the 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 great intellectual uh, father of Salafi thought. Uh, he was though Wahhab Ibn Abdul Wahhab was much more. Um, it uh, was much more of an kind of ob- austere desert preacher and extremely intolerant uh, in a way that I think Ibn Taymiyyah can't really be accused of in that he would find different types of innovators people who were practicing in Islam Islam in a way that was not recognizable from the first generations and not just say that they were wrong or that they were misguided but they in many cases had to be fought so Ibn Abdul Wahhab and the Wahhabi followers who have come after him would see things like mystical practices, Sufis uh, would find uh, graves that that uh, were adorned and the objects of pilgrimage and say, no, that's not Islam. It must be destroyed. And the people who 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 uh, promulgate the that method of of practicing Islam need to be uh, corrected and if not corrected, then fought. So you can see already how this would be something that ISIS would find uh, attractive. Um, so that takes us to the end of the 18th century. Now speeding things up as, as, as much as we possibly can, Saudi Arabia is a Wahhabi state. Uh, it it is a it's ruled by the as- Al Saud family, and the 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 arrangement. For most of of the Saudi monarchy's history, the last two hundred plus years, has been the Al Saud will control the political affairs of the state, and the official religion will be Wahhabism, and the clerics will be able to do whatever they they wish. They're giving general support to the Saud family. Now that has meant that Wahhabism has been enshrined in the the, the Saudi state and uh, and the saudis have have basically said if if you want an islamic state we are the islamic state you are seeking now isis has then taken that form of wahhabism and chosen the the kind of prickliest most unfriendly and intolerant versions of it and said that the the al saud family is inadequate it is in fact giving up its obligation to rule according to islam and so they are not this the Islamic State that we're seeking, we are, and so they fight against the, the Saudi State on, on that basis. And if there's any doubt about whether Wahhabi is the correct way to describe ISIS, and I, I would say it is, it is the correct way, they have vans and buses driving around, or they did when they controlled more territory than they have right now, that have banners, that have quotations from Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab. So. They are big fans of Ibn Abdul Wahhab and think that they are the, the, uh, the only real um, inheritors of, of, of his tradition. And then to get finally to the last uh, bit of nomenclature that you raised, jihadism. So I mentioned that there are Salafis who uh, don't want to fight, who they are not political. They're called quietist Salafis. And that is really the way that the Saudi monarchy has, has um, uh has, has spread Salafism and Wahhabism, is to say, how do you spend your time as a Muslim who wants to emulate the pious forefathers? Well, you make sure you know how to pray right. You make sure you are not uh, involved in uh, aspects of the economy that, that are contrary to, to Islamic law. Uh, what you don't do is fight. You don't pick up a gun and try to kill somebody. Now, the ones, so that's quietest Salafism. The ones who say actually what you have to do is fight, those are the jihadists. And that's, uh, they're not exclusively Salafi, they're a Sufi jihadists as well. But the ones that w- we are most familiar with today are Salafi jihadists or jihadi Salafis who say that yes, we need to very aggressively turn back the clock to the time of the pious ancestors, and that one of the ways we do that is to pick up a gun and shoot someone.
0: I worry, though, because all of this is true, and there's so much mixing of different ideologies from different places over long periods of time. And I worry that the use of terminology for the general public can be really confusing. So when they hear they're Wahhabi, Salafi, Jihadists, Sunnis, you know, and it just goes on and on. What is the layman left with with all that? So is there any preference you have that how a person should describe ISIS that wouldn't, would be less confusing for people?
1: Um, yeah, I, I think jihadist or Salafi jihadist is a, is a term that is due to enter the mainstream. We, mm-hmm. we should be understanding them with, with that phrase because it, it, it really does encompass the theological views, the legal views, and the political views that really come to a head and crystallize in, in ISIS. ISIS adds a bit more, because there are Salafi jihadists like bin Laden that were not focused on f- founding a caliphate. But that phrase is one that, that people who are interested in, in radical Islam should really familiarize themselves with and and, and um, identify with the Islamic State. Now, uh, I'll add one um, one little twist here, which is that, the vast majority of these groups don't use these terms. Uh, they're not the first terms that they would use to, to, to describe themselves. Um, and they'll all describe themselves just as Muslims. So if, if you uh, look at, at the interview that that my colleague Jeffrey Goldberg did with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, um, Mohammed bin Salman said, Wahhabism, what's that? And literally claimed ignorance of, of what hmm. that what that term meant and what that tradition was. And that was a um, kind of pedantic attempt to just say, we don't call ourselves that, we call ourselves Muslims. We say that what we do is just Islam, and, and by the way, it's the only kind of Islam. So you'll frequently have people muddy the waters by saying, oh, we're, we're Muslims. And th- those people may be jihadists, they may be quietist Salafis, or they might be mainstream peaceful Muslims who all just say we're we're the Muslims and everybody else is not. I think that that's where we have to start is by uh, differentiating these things, and starting just by saying, especially as uh, as outsiders uh, or as as kind of objective observers of these things, that Islam, like Christianity or Judaism is just a great big tradition. It has contradictory viewpoints within it. And we we don't share the sectarian nomenclature of the most sectarian members of the faith any more than we would say, uh, if if we're not Catholics that that uh, you know Catholics are the only Christians, and we shouldn't call Methodists Christians. That, that would be a crazy way to to refer to to, to Christian sects as an outsider. It would you know, be kind of crazy even as a Catholic, but my, my point is simply that we, we should be cautious to use uh, careful terminology and reserve the term of Islam for a fairly broad uh, contradictory tradition, and then use very specific labels for subsets of that, such as Salafi Jihadist, Quietist Jihadist, Sufi, etc.
0: That uh, leads me to my next question, actually pretty perfectly, is while reading your book there, you go over so much but one thing really stuck out um I, I think it was pretty important to you and i've every other thing i've read about isis although I, it's not my main subject i deal a lot more with ex-muslims or people who are kind of in the fundamentalist middle more than uh, jihad but a lot of the analysts i have read about isis put a lot of emphasis on takfir uh, the excommunicating of other Muslims. This I find really fascinating because they go really, really overboard with this, and it's kind of counterintuitive to excommunicate such large swaths of of Muslims just out of the faith, considering Islam is an evangelical religion. They want people to convert. There's so much emphasis on trying to get new converts to the religion. Um, it kind of reminds me, I mean, the Mormons go really far on this where they try to convert even the dead, right, with the the practice of baptism of the dead. Um, and they were even constantly painstakingly trying to convert you to Islam in these, uh, in these long conversations that would go on for months uh, with the people you met. Isn't it counterintuitive to want to increase your numbers and try to get new converts and at the same time do... Takfir to such large levels where they seem to be excommunicating entire countries uh, of people and entire sects and et cetera, et cetera. What? W- w- why? Why do this if, if they want to grow as a state?
1: Yeah, it, it, it's uh, it does seem to be like a, a, a there's a tension between these two impulses to have mm-hmm. a big tent to to draw people in, and then also to to say that. Most of the people, in fact, the vast majority of people who uh, want to be on their side, who want to be identified as Muslims, uh, as they do, uh, aren't allowed in. They're not allowed into that big tent. The tent turns out to be kind of small. So um, to to give an example of this, uh, they think that anyone who votes in an election has nullified his Islam. This this term, the nullification of, of Islam, is something very big in Ibn Abdul Wahhab's writing. And it's something that ISIS really picked up and, and, and ran with. Um, so why voting in an election? Why does that nullify your Islam? Because uh, of the uh, repeatedly stated claim that, that legislation must be reserved for God. And if you are creating, based on your your ballot a uh, system of government with laws that uh, may contradict the laws of God, then you are legislating and you have then picked up the, the, the mantle of, of, of God, the, the authority of God. And what could be more, um, blasphemous than that? What could, what could nullify your Islam more than that? So if, if you vote in an election, that would be enough. Uh, if you neglect prayer, that would certainly be enough. Um, You can just run down the list of types of failure to to live up to the isis version of a muslim life that isis thinks is the end of it that's that's you leaving the religion so they're they're super sectarian in that regard they think of themselves as purifiers of the faith so they they they're like a kind of filtration process where they believe that They will be the few and the proud and they will be the ones who are the real Muslims and uh, they should expect to be in that minority. Um, There's a a very um, beloved narration or saying of the Prophet Muhammad that Salafis of all type, not just ISIS, have have brought up, which is that um, uh, they call themselves the chosen sect. They say... That the prophet said that there will be 73 sects uh, of Muslims, and only one of these will actually enter the kingdom of God. The rest of them are wrong. So there you go. Uh, that, that says it pretty clearly that that only a minority of them are going to be right. And it shouldn't be too strange to them if they notice that most Muslims are objecting to what they do. Because guess what? Most Muslims are headed to the hellfire.
0: You were constantly asked to kind of psychoanalyze ISIS after your long conversations with them in in your book. I kind of want to flip the table around, and I want to do a psychoanalysis of Westerners' view of ISIS and know what you think. Because almost every video I saw of you being interviewed on your book almost always led to the question is isis religious and it seems like you're almost stuck in that question with people and it it seems beyond obvious that there is to some degree religiosity in in what they do and why they do it It, it's i think you've you've made it clear on uh, in the book and in many conversations that it's extremely important and i think you and i might agree on how important it is um so we don't really have to you know what i kind of want to do is make the assumption okay we agree that isis has a religious basis and then move forward to okay why are we stuck on this on, on in the west why for example leah remedy who left the church of scientology why is she not constantly asked is 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 the church of scientology a religious group when they do their bullying of people who have left it is it is it not just <laughs> economics is it not just politics you know she, she'd she never i never heard her get that question um you can go through <laughs> any religion right it, it almost seems ridiculous to be asked that in, in that in that case but it's more ridiculous actually in your case but it's still constantly asked why is there this western rejection to wanting to admit that that these people are extremely religious I mean not you're not just saying this I mean they they wrote that article in Dabik uh, why we hate you and why we fight you and they make it extremely clear stop saying that it's politics or economics we don't like you because of our religion like they're they're yelling it from from the rooftops like that so yeah why does that
1: happen I've I've gotten the question as you as you say many many times and um what, what strikes me first is, is that um, it's just a bizarre question I, 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 there was a dispute over whether Isis is Islamic whether Isis is religious that I was very much part of in the early in early 2015 and um, it was when looking back at that dispute and the way it unfolded in, in the us the UK the Western world in, in general and then how it uh, it didn't even really need to happen in the Islamic world. There was no dispute, as far as I could tell, in among uh, in in Arab countries, in other Islamic countries, about whether ISIS was Islamic, because they could very easily read the texts much more easily than than, than the average American could, and they could f- they were familiar enough with their own tradition to see that ISIS was indeed. Trying to do things in its own peculiar, peculiar and horrible way, in the way that uh, of 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 Islam, and that was familiar from the tradition. So, it I think may begin with a simple lack of acquaintance on the part of Americans, Brits, with the history of Islam. Uh, th- they were not able to see um, things that uh, are have been part of the faith of Islam. Historically, but that are rarely high priorities for the Muslims they know. So take, for example, slavery. Um, You would have to look pretty hard in the United States to find a Muslim who was really interested as part of his religious faith in reviving the practice of slavery. There are no Muslims who want to revive slavery, as far as I can tell, in the United States except ones who have, have gone to ISIS. So... If you, on the other hand, uh, ask a Egyptian, the same question, there's a much, much greater probability that he'll be aware that in the very land where he, where he lived, Islam was understood to sanction the ownership of human beings by other, by other human beings. It's not far from the, from, uh, from, from an Egyptian's, uh, education to be aware of that. Now, that doesn't mean an Egyptian is interested in reviving the practice either, but he'll be familiar with the fact that, that slavery was once a thing in Islam. And when I say once, I mean, within the the lifetime of his great, great grandparents or great grandparents. So this is, um, that's, that's part of it. Uh, my usual response to people with these questions is, uh, let's say it was religious. How would you know? What would the things be that you would look for to to convince you that it was religious? Hmm. And the answer to that, um, you know, whatever answer they give, it's pretty obvious by observing ISIS that it is indeed religious by by the criterion that they themselves would would offer. Um, and you know, those criterion might be something like, well, do we have evidence that they think a lot about questions that we consider? Religious questions like the ultimate good and ultimate evil in the world, the nature of God or gods, the nature of humans' relationships with the divine, and you look at what ISIS does, and it's it's not just in in magazines like Dabik, which are meant for public consumption, but w- with with ISIS, maybe unlike Al Qaeda, there we have ample opportunity to see what they say to themselves, not to us, but to themselves. Mm-hmm. What do they say? When they have conversations with each other on Telegram in in closed chat groups, what do they say when they chat with each other on on, on Twitter? They constantly are thinking of their project as one that that is uh, is you know, for lack of any other word that that would make sense, religious. Um, so it, it 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 is a kind of mental block that I think a, a lot of Westerners have to think of ISIS as something that that oh could it. It couldn't possibly be religious because, first of all, they don't know what what it would mean for for ISIS to be religious in a tradition that's unfamiliar to them. To them. And then, after that, in a, a much deeper psychological block, they um, they 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 simply, even by their, the criteria that they themselves would give, are not able to apply them to a group that is as horrific as ISIS. And I think that last part has something to do with. ISIS's uh, really unparalleled ability to short circuit people's brains, and you have seen this yourself. I mean, I, ISIS's activities are so outrageous, so evil, and so spectacularly so that I don't think anyone can can recover from watching uh, beheading after beheading. Uh, Without a, a lot of kind of um, you know self care and mm-hmm. getting to the point where where, where you, you're you put your mind back online, um, a lot of people their minds never really got back online and they were not able to to apply the analytical faculties that they would would use in any other context.
0: I want to talk to you about the level of ignorance people have of Islam. Um, I speak with a lot of ex-Muslims and Muslims are brought up in very isolated communities and therefore it does lead them to know a lot about their religion, a lot about Muslims, but it's kind of shocking to me sometimes, not just what they say about Islam, but that they think that non-Muslims know about the religion and I have had to stop them and say, Whoa, that that's, that's really not true. People don't know anything about Islam You say Sunni or Shia to people, they have no idea what you're talking about. They don't, it's not even that superficial reading that even the layman has of Christianity. People don't know anything whatsoever. And actually, we were just, the entire Western world was thrown into this conversation just after 9 11, really. It wasn't out of interest and nobody was really prepared for it. People in schools weren't being prepared to study about the Middle East and ISIS. So it's only been about, 20 years that we've almost like had to cram like before a test uh, because of terrorism to know about this religion. And most people still have, I mean, we, you and I kind of go way out of our way to study about this, but most people don't overwhelming majority of people don't. And it's leading to a lot of misunderstandings about the religion. And then on top of that, since people are trying to aggressively, cram for this test of Islam, they're going to their Muslim neighbor, which seems intuitive to do but this leads them to sometimes people with mixed uh, agendas that they kind of want to protect their religion and make it look better and not necessarily tell the whole truth. People like Reza Aslan or Linda Sarsour, people who sometimes out of ignorance, sometimes not very ignorant. I wouldn't say actually Rez Aslan was ignorant about Islam at all, about how they're presenting it. So I don't really know the solution to this. I've heard people say, we need to ban the Quran. So I, I often respond to that, that we need actually comprehensive, comparative religion classes and schools. But I don't even know if that's necessarily a good thing because who would teach it? Where would the books come from? And might that even create some fundamentalism to people converting to islam but it, would it also help that people get a basic understanding of the religion i'm i'm really at a loss for this and i'm kind of wondering where you stand on it seeing as you you have seen people from even western countries progress towards uh, islam do you see us uh, one a problem and in, into the solution to the the immense ignorance we have
1: Yes, I, I, I certainly do see a problem. And I, I even see in your description of what happened after the problem arose, the, the roots of one of the, the kind of second order problems, which is we after 9-11, people would go to their Muslim neighbor and they would ask what's going on here. And um, just think about that. Going to your Muslim neighbor to ask about Islam it is a normal human impulse to find what's familiar, what's trusted, and then use that as a as a, a, a way to, to, to learn about what's unfamiliar. But what's the likelihood that your Muslim neighbor is actually going to know a lot about jihadism or about even the history of his own religion? It's probably the likelihood that your Catholic neighbor will know the deep history of Catholicism, which is to say it's a non-zero chance. But unless your neighbor is a priest or you know a former seminarian, then probably will will not know the history of of Catholicism all that well, or you know whether specific questions like whether uh, it's an ontological change to be an archbishop, but uh, from being a bishop. I can attest uh, to this very well. Know.
0: By the way, I live in a Catholic country of Chile, where the overwhelming majority of people are Catholic, and it's 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 it, there's not even that much secularism between the uh, the people in the catholic church and i can i can attest that the average catholic knows next to nothing about the religion and that that exactly. would be very problematic if there was a muslim here and just went to their neighbor tell me about catholicism they would say ah, well there's a pope and he's in rome <laughs> something like that that's where it would end
1: almost yeah the, the expectation yeah. that that the random even the random ch- church going catholic is going to be able to to explain the the you know the history of, of the church's view on just wars uh is basically zero you're gonna f- have to find someone who, who is a real expert and so all, i think a lot of us turned to our the uh, the uh the equivalent of our muslim neighbors and then ask them about to explain islam and the average muslim neighbor does not spend any time thinking about when it's appropriate to blow up a building the average muslim neighbor will think that's just a horrible thing to to do and will think of his religion most likely as a source of of uh you know morality in in what we could just call a conventional cosmopolitan sense of being good to each other so what we instead had to do is find people who were real experts in the history of the faith. And guess what? The, um, the answer to what is the relationship of, of the nine 11 hijackers to Islam is a complicated one. Uh, you, you have to first of all say how they're different and then you have to say how they're the same. And to understand that you need to know something about a very, very complicated faith that, uh, it, it, uh, it's, it's unlikely that even, I would say, you know, I forget Muslim neighbor, a learned Muslim is not going to have spent most of his time studying his religion trying to understand how a wacky, murderous sect of his religion thinks, but how Muslims have thought historically. So to, to give you an example of how this works in the context of academic study of Islam, um, U.S. Wachemakers, who, who was one of the leading scholars of jihadism, I asked him, why aren't there more academics who study jihadism? And he said, well, look, this is a religion that's 1,400 years old, and its greatest hits are philosophers, theologians, great people who are thinking about questions like whether the Quran is a created book or an uncreated book, which have nothing to do with. The the w- what happened to nine eleven. So of course people are going to be studying the things that are the greatest achievements of, of Islamic civilization, and not studying a wacky sect that has has existed in its current form only for a short period of time and that very very few Muslims have have followed. So yeah, it, the 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 specificity of what you're studying has to has to be um, has to be extreme, and of course people are going to start by trying to study. The religion of a whole, as as a whole, and they're going to constantly make mistakes of part for whole, confusing the friendly neighborhood Muslim cardiologist they know for uh, all of Islam, and to assume that because they know and respect her that the that all all Muslims are like that, or not knowing any friendly neighborhood Muslim cardiologist, and then instead seeing crazy Muslim guy shooting someone else in the head and assume that that part is representative of the whole. Actually, like in, like in Christianity, uh, you know, obviously there are going to be Muslims who are of, of one type and of the other. So with a tradition that's unfamiliar, the, the, that, that propensity to mistake part for whole is going to be very pronounced.
0: I think you felt the results of this ignorant in a conference that you tweeted about. Um, recently that you were booed off stage
1: C- <laughs> yes could, that's you re- right.
0: could you recount that yeah
1: I, I was at a it was 2015 i believe uh it, there was a an interfaith conference that I, I was speaking at uh in salt lake city and most of it was me talking about isis talking about contemporary jihadism uh and the crowd was very um uh, it was very welcoming and then um Toward the end, someone brought up an article that I had written and quoted, not me, actually, but someone who, who a source of mine, and the question was, uh, how much should we invest in killing Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi? And my source said, probably a lot. Should We should drone him as soon as we can, uh, because he represents something special as the first of the renewed cal- caliphs, the new, renewed line of caliphs. And so I was asked by the person in the audience, do you believe that we should should drone Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi? And I was a bit taken aback. That wasn't one of the things I was speaking about. But I said, well, I, I'm not picky about whether he's droned or stabbed or poisoned or suffocated. Uh, but yes, I, I, I think it would be appropriate to go and try to find this genocidal figure who is already re- responsible for the executions, let alone deaths, of thousands and thousands of people, and to uh, to neutralize him. I would prefer, of course, to capture him alive, but to drone him, yes, I would support that if we had the opportunity. And there were some gasps in the audience, and I think someone said, uh, I've been going to interfaith conferences for 30 years, and I believe this is the first time that I've heard a speaker say, that he would support the assassination of a religious leader uh the the anger of the crowd uh, got greater and greater and the the um the session ended prematurely and then there were people who were were hounding me afterward and saying like this is an interfaith conference it's the not the place to to be saying these things and i i uh, i got a little testy and I, I i said to a small group afterward "Look." I, ISIS has interfaith conferences, too, and they're called slave markets. And at that point, uh, things broke up and I was uh, chased down the hallway a bit.
0: I think you said that uh, the conference took place in Salt Lake City. I think that's your problem right there.
1: I I, I hasten to add that that the conference took place there. I I doubt few of the people in the audience were from Salt Lake City. They were from a a whole mishmash of of groups and uh, religions and subsects, all of which ISIS would be very, very eager to, elu- uh, to eliminate. I, I, there was a, <laughs> I was there under the auspices of the Co- council on foreign relations where I was working at the time. And we had a little booth where the, the writings of scholars on, from the council were being, uh, being showcased to the booth next to ours was manned by a, a actual prophet, a person who was describing himself himself as a prophet. Um, yeah, th- that's, that's one of the things you can't do ISIS's eyes, is claim that you speak directly to God uh, after after the the seal of the prophets is <laughs> as has long since been gone. So, um, yeah, I, you definitely can't blame the the chilly reception I got on Mormons. In my experience, are very.
0: Nice. You had said in the, about the conference because people were asking you if the crowd was Muslim, and you said no. I think you said there was only one well known Islamist in the crowd, and he he was he was behaving very well and the rest were you would describe as all in all likelihood non-muslim so it's it is that western sentiment towards islam and isis with extreme ignorance it seems like people have been infected with assumptions about islam and isis like how do you explain what happened to you because i i'm almost sure those people are not justifying what abu bakr al baghdadi has done or ISIS has done, I don't think they know and I don't think it, it, they have exactly a clear idea of what Islam is, what ISIS is, what jihadism is, what they're doing. What is the problem and again, solution Solution there, mainly, mainly the yeah. problem.
1: I, I think there's a couple things going on. Um, so first of all, the, the Muslims present, uh, the most prominent of them present uh, was Tariq Ramadan, a uh, mm. very famous Oxford professor, now somewhat disgraced for, for, uh, for uh, uh, because of allegations of rape, mm. uh, multiple allegations of rape. But Tariq Ramadan introduced himself to me beforehand was very friendly, uh, and has been very friendly since, uh, at no point w- was, was he objecting to this. And, uh, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but the average Muslim you'll speak to will believe that, that it is incumbent on us to fight against ISIS. Uh, some of them who don't think that the United States should fight against ISIS nevertheless think that Muslims should. So um, it, it shouldn't surprise us that, that uh, Muslims were not leading the charge to to you know end my speech um, because I claimed because I said that, that Baghdadi should be should be targeted the second thing though is that um, this was not just a Christian conference it was not just a western conference it was a interfaith conference which I, I think took as a given that uh, religion is good that, all types of religion are good and more than being good are in a funny way compatible so uh the idea that there would be a religion that would be um such as Isis's version of Islam that would be totally incompatible and that would you know if Isis had a booth at that conference they would execute every other person at every other booth that that I don't think really computed for these people there's the broader question of, of Christians and others who are not at the conference who uh, might confuse ISIS for a group that, that uh, even if it wasn't, you know, tolerant of other religions or believe that maybe somehow Hindus had a path to salvation, we're, we're, would at least be a religion like other religions in that it would be willing to coexist. Uh, that is to to, to let God sort things out in the afterlife and that's just not the case there have been many people politicians religious types who have said you know we should have we should look for ways to to um to stop the expansion of ISIS and to maybe exchange ambassadors with them have a way of having a conversation that will lead us to to something other than just a battlefield confrontation and 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 lobbing bombs at each other Um, and that is uh, utter nonsense there's nothing in the history of Isis that would suggest that they would be amenable to that kind of arrangement Uh, and Much in their history that 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 would suggest that they would um, Yeah that that they that they will fight and fight and fight and until Their enemies uh, are enslaved and subdued
0: Well, let's go back to that later, but um, I want to ask you about, because I studied film in my background, so I'm very interested in the representation of politics and society on film or television, and it's kind of shocking to me to see how little ISIS has been represented in media. As far as television or or movies, uh, most other conflicts are represented in some way. Um, the only representations I know of is a Channel 4 series called The State about uh-huh. ISIS. It was it was well done, and I think it was well filmed and had a decent story, and, and, and I think there was a lot of research done, although I felt it was a little bit too sympathetic because it mainly tried to show ISIS fighters in a good light, but... Um, and then there, the only other representation I know is from a show called Black Crows, which is from the Middle East, from uh, M- MBS, Middle East Broadcasting Corporation. That's extremely few representations uh, of ISIS. I want to know if you had seen any of these representations and what you, if you thought they were more or less accurate, and what also you think about w- w- why is it that there are so little representations in the, in media. Uh, of of Isis,
1: that's a fascinating question. I, I, i'll I'll first say that that there are representations of ISIS, and they come from ISIS. So there is no shortage of ways that y- you can see images of ISIS uh, and um, w- w- what one of the things that makes ISIS strange and different from other groups is that the images that that are at hand for us are ones that have been provided by the group. Um, and I mean, on any given day, I'll be watching several videos that are, are, are uh, uh, often official, sometimes unofficial, uh, productions by ISIS with the ISIS logo, ISIS branding and ISIS distribution. So, um, I wonder if that might, uh, consume some of the, the limited supply of oxygen for, for, um for other types of representation of ISIS too. I haven't seen the channel four series, nor have I seen the, seen the NBC series. I think that it, it is still a, uh, it's a task for, um, only the most sophisticated and adroit filmmakers to try to present a group that is so incomprehensible that it's it's still, as I say, it, it, it takes one's mind offline temporarily just, to observe the most basic facts about what they do um, i think in my book the, the way of the strangers I, I, I quote a human rights watch um uh worker named peter buchard he's, he's the guy who human rights watch sends to examine atrocities and then observe the human rights violations as they're happening so that they can be recorded and those who who've done them can be held to account when ISIS first put, started putting out his, its videos, uh, the massacre of, of about a thousand, mostly Shia Iraqi air cadets in Tikrit, um, the statement that that he put out was uh, it was almost adorably um, um, faithful about to ISIS's humanity, uh, you know, or or optimistic about ISIS's humanity in the way it said, you know, we're watching here and that you're doing bad things and the world will hold you to account. Um, as if there was something to appeal to there. The just assumption that, that no, ISIS has a conscience and it realizes it shouldn't be doing these things. It really speaks to the, the psychological gulf between uh, you and, and and me on one hand and then ISIS on the other because you would in any representation of them have to explain why they were able to do these things and not feel guilty about them, but feel proud. Um, that's, that's an immense psychological leap that I think most filmmakers have, um, do not have the capability of of doing. I will say this, the ones who finally managed to do it, will, uh, be telling one of the most extraordinary stories of modern times, how 45,000 people from, uh, non-war zones. Remember, these are not people who, who have had their, their homes destroyed, but who are living in places like Cairo, uh, like Khartoum, like Birmingham, like Dallas, and who decide to go to ISIS because they think ISIS is doing the right thing. That's, that's a wave of human migration and, uh, an act of, of, of really inconceivable commitment that um, I think at some point uh, fiction or films will, will, will attempt and I hope someday succeed in depicting. If one investigates
0: accounts of ISIS victims or uh, consumes any of their media, it's unlike anything anyone has ever even imagined in probably the worst slasher film. Did, did this affect you at all, on a psychological level, to consume this media, to hear these stories at all?
1: Yes. Uh, w- when I worked in Iraq in the early 2000s, some of the first beheading videos were coming out, um, and I saw them then. Uh, they, they were being passed around. Uh, among Iraqis, uh, it was it was it was gruesome, and I just remember thinking the, the first time I saw one of those that um, I have lost something. I I've been hurt by watching this, uh, and I don't know if I'll recover it. And it, it would it would be cliched to say it, would, it was you know innocence. It was it was something much deeper than that. Like I felt I felt like less of a human being myself after after watching it. Well, I've, I've since watched, I'm sure at this point, thousands mm. of of such videos. Uh, and the good news is that the second one hurts you less than the first one. And the thousandth one, I feel like it, it kind of hurts you not at all. But there have been stages along the way where uh, my dreams have been haunted by the images of what ISIS has put out. Um, these are these are incredibly awful things they, they there's there's almost no words to to describe it and you know I'm, I can think back and and see in my mind's eye um the the bodies of people who uh, are are or seeing people who are on their way to becoming corpses before before the lens of the camera uh and yeah this is uh this is something i would wish on nobody the execution itself i would wish on nobody um i would also wish on nobody the the experience of 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 watching it if it weren't a professional obligation of mine uh, i certainly would not do it
0: yeah i i again i i haven't placed too much concentration on what i study on isis but i've i study a lot and i've interviewed and talk to so many people who are ex-Muslim or Muslim in the Middle East. And I've put a lot of focus on what I see about ISIS on the victims, sometimes uh, many Yazidi and knowing what I know about what they've done to people. I find it extremely disturbing to hear that these people are coming back to their home countries, considering that a lot of ISIS fighters are, foreign-born they're from a Western country Europe United States Canada Australia etc now there's a lot of debate because there's been the ISIS has been largely dismantled um, and a lot of them are flying back and there's a lot of debate if they should be allowed in at all if they should have their citizenship taken away knowing what I know I feel very little sympathy for these people. And I don't know exactly what justice would look like in these cases to let them in and try in to attempt to have a trial based on crimes, a person committed in another country, possibly no evidence. I I don't even know what the punishment would entail for the crimes. These people have committed, even if you could find out what they've committed more beyond just joining ISIS. And if you don't actually have some kind of trial are you just leaving them in the middle east and they're from the west so you you've kind of contributed to more extremism in the middle east i'm very torn on what to do in these cases i understand the western point of view of leaving these people there because you don't want them in your country but you are responsible for them because they're from your country they and you're just leaving all these people crammed into the middle east and they just don't need any more of that i i don't Know where I really fall on on this topic of returning ISIS fighters. Do you have an opinion on this?
1: I have complex opinions on this uh it, it, th- so uh, a few things first of all, one of the best predictors about whether someone is going to be um uh is gonna kill a lot of people is whether he has training, whether he's come back. From somewhere, after having learned how to shoot straight, uh, how to move tactically in a crowd, with and collaborate with other people who are who are also trained, uh, and that's the type of training that someone will have had in abundance after being with ISIS for any amount of time, and so I don't think we should uh, hesitate to to when we find people like that to. Uh, to put huge amounts of of resources into tracking them down and finding out what their plans are and, and um arresting them um i'm also i'm opposed to capital punishment in all cases so i, I don't think that that uh, i think that they should be killed unless that there is no option but i also think that there are are no options some in some cases and i also feel as a citizen of two western countries that have contributed isis fighters that we have a responsibility to uh keep our own citizens from from uh, causing more uh bloodshed overseas so you know when i think of americans who are over in isis territory i think as an american i i i feel like we have an obligation to try to take them off the battlefield so that i i'm very much in favor of now there are those who come back and who don't intend to fight Uh, who regret going over there in the first place, Um, and who, who, if you give them enough time, they will be, uh, uh, they won't be people you will be proud to have as neighbors, but they'll be reasonably safe people to have around as neighbors. Um, The problem, of course, is figuring out which ones are coming back to kill as many people as possible and which ones are coming back to try to quietly resume life and get a minimum wage job. Um, there exist people in both categories. Um, it's, it's, it's worth noting. I think that a lot of the people who went to ISIS, you wouldn't have been able to convince them that they were going to be part of ISIS five years ago. They were not of the ISIS mindset. They were converted. And that says something about the ability of, of humans, human minds and commitments to change. Um. I don't know that they'll be uh, able to be converted back. Is, is this a ratcheting effect? Do people get deprogrammed, really? I'm sure some of them do. But I wouldn't be too quick to assume that um, that someone who comes back uh, is still ISIS, uh, ISIS supportive. I mean, th- there have been a few studies of returnees, and they've not been promising, I'll, I'll say that, They've suggested that, that people still think that um, the idea of ISIS was a good one. It was just the practice of ISIS that was bad. Actually, the idea of ISIS is a horrible thing. And the fact that they're still committed to that um, is, is bad news. Um, but w- w- we have only the least sophistication in our, our understanding of how, um, how these beliefs translate into action. There's so many people out there, um, mostly not in Western countries, but say in Saudi Arabia who think that ISIS bad, I don't want to be ruled by ISIS. They'll say, but ISIS is kind of right when it's saying that the Shia are infidels and they need to be fought. Now that's, uh, that's a very complicated position to deal with. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it, it. In one sense, it's support of genocide. In another sense, it's just uh, kind of um, moral support of genocide, uh, which doesn't sound that great, right? But but it's better than actual commission of genocide. So I, I I'm not sure exactly what to do. Except you have to keep all of these things in mind. And then there are individuals. One of the people I I profiled in *The Way of the Strangers* is this American fighter and with ISIS, John Georgeless. Who went over to Syria is he? Um, last anyone heard of him was in Syria uh, making propaganda for ISIS, and his wife, who had been a supporter of his, agreed with his in 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 most things, and who went to Syria with him and with their three kids, one on the way, um, at the beginning of his time there. Uh, she left. She left him. She came back to to the United States, and having observed her for some time, I can say with with confidence, I think, that, that uh, she is much more interested in living a pretty conventional suburban Texas life than being with ISIS. So she, just as, even after 12 years, she was able to, to sort of change her mind. Um, there are gonna be other people like that who whose whose radicalism was partly a function of, of being influenced by other people whose minds will never change. Uh, and to to figure out which ones are the ones who are malleable and which ones are committed and permanently murderous is, is, gonna, be, is gonna be tough. The last thing I'll say on, on this is, um, time is uh, in some ways on our side. Um, de-radicalization by, aid, by the aging process is a real thing. And people get tired of fighting as young men, and some of them keep on fighting or moving on to the management of fighting, but a lot of them drop out and decide that that was, uh, that was enough of that. So um, that, there's a lot of them out there. 45,000 is a lot, a lot of them are dead, some of them will age out of it, and then some of them uh, will probably have to fight and kill.
0: So it's very interesting that for me being not necessarily a you know person of any notoriety in media or anything like that. I'm essentially just a guy in Chile who built his own podcast from his home. And I can read books and go on Twitter and communicate with the author. Um, I recently read a book by Manal Sharif, uh, Daring to Drive, and was tweeting about it. She followed me on Twitter. I got to speak with her a little bit. And even before reading your book, I think you were already following me on Twitter um, for my comments or I'm not really sure, but um, that I get to read your book and then you very kindly from me asking uh, almost immediately, you responded that, yes, of course I'd like to be on your podcast. Um, That I think is a very positive aspect of social media, considering especially Twitter, doesn't have a lot of positive (laughs) positivity in it, but it's making the world s- smaller that's obvious i wouldn't have been able to do this without social media this is entirely a our conversation is a product of social media and the internet age but so is isis in a lot of ways and i think you when you were even asked like how did you reach the, per- the people you met to have your interviews with it was through social media and isis is very apt at social media so what, is, what role does social media play for the Islamic State?
1: Um, I am not the most aggressive user of social media, uh, and I'm sure I w- would have speedily, uh, assented to the, to the suggestion that we do a podcast, even if you had contacted me some other way, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, for ISIS, uh, for finding ISIS supporters, social media has been invaluable. Um, even just as a as a phone book, you know, if you find someone who's been tweeting about ISIS and tweeting original photos from Syria, uh, you can you can be pretty sure that you've got someone who who is connected to ISIS in some way. Maybe is even there. Uh, and you could do that without even having to leave your home, um, without having to get beheaded. That's a it's a huge advantage to a journalist today. Uh, and so, from from just my side, that was that was great. You can also, by the way, watch that person talking to other people online. Um, back in the the kind of glory days of Twitter, when ISIS followers were were openly conversing with each other, you got a, a, a fair approximation of what their um, what their entire internal dialogue was like, how they were trying to recruit their friends. You could watch recruitment interactions unfold in front of you. And you compare that to Al Qaeda. You know, Al Qaeda, if we were watching Al Qaeda in 2003, uh, those interactions would be known to um, almost nobody. Maybe some NSA intercept would be able to look at them, but I couldn't. It would just be something that that was a secret. So we can, Paradoxically, we can know much more about ISIS, this um, nevertheless very secretive organization, today, uh, than we could about about Al Qaeda. There's just a, a, a whole waterfall of information that that, uh, that reaches us more than any individual could ever process. Um, now, for ISIS, social media has been have been very um, very useful for for recruitment, um, but in um, in ways that I think people misunderstand. Uh, there's a widespread belief that people go on Twitter and they see ISIS beheadings and they say, that's for me. And then a week later they're in ISIS land and they're learning how to shoot an AK 47. It doesn't seem to be empirically how it works almost ever. Uh, what ISIS has been able to do is to graft the social media aspect onto in-person recruitment. So you'd you'd very frequently find that there was one person who went early, for some reason, from one place, from one town in, say, Cardiff, and then he writes back to his friends. And the friends ask, how is it going? And he says, it's going great, I found paradise, it's wonderful, Uh, and then he can say, by the way, if you wanna know more, don't just listen to me look at Twitter and sure enough, ISIS through it's, it's bots through its social media tentacles has produced an easily accessible kind of continuing education self study course where if after first being initiated by an in-person acquaintance, you want to know more that in-person acquaintance can go off and fight and maybe be killed. And then you yourself can solo in front of your computer or with a few of your friends get radicalized. ISIS has has figured out all these angles and they've they've really exploited them. Now, today, if you go on Twitter and you try to find ISIS propaganda, it's harder. It's it's much harder. Um, Facebook was early in in nixing that stuff. Twitter a little bit later, but it still has has, has sort of gotten its act together and now ISIS is reduced it's, it can still do it it's but it's reduced to platforms that are small enough that they couldn't possibly monitor their their content for ISIS propaganda uh so you find like just paste it uh telegram uh the internet archive these are all sources where if if you look you can find a lot of ISIS stuff in a lot of a lot of languages but it 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 it, it is meant that that If you write back to your friends in Cardiff, you can't just say, go on the social media site you already use. It's more like, go find this uh, kind of skeevy, uh, secondary, tertiary um, social media site, and uh, you have to do a lot more hunting, which is a real triumph for the enemies of ISIS that they've they've had to get to that stage.
0: So I want to uh, actually touch on that point about radicalization. Um I find it very hard to accept the fact that people are simply radicalized through the internet and that I know we we try to be fair to the fact that a lot of the product of these extremist groups are due to poverty and politics, American interventionism However, when people look to the Middle East and they describe those aspects of that place, for me, it's kind of hard to reconcile because I'm in South America, in Chile, and this this region has, one, a lot of poverty, two, a lot of political conflict, three, a lot of American intervention. I mean, in Chile, I hope I don't have to go over... The intervention of America in, in recent uh, politics with Pinochet. We have so much of that. And I just can't imagine even with the religiosity in in South America, which is very high. It's it's people like to say that America's one of the most religious countries in the West. I'm mean, every single country in South America is more religious than the United States by far, both the population and government. There's a lot less secularism in almost every South American country. So I would I would uh, concede that these extremist groups are exacerbated in their religious violence by poverty, lack of education. American intervention definitely does not make it better. But it's not that you automatically get an ISIS from only the aspects of politics, poverty, religion, and I and I I think I even saw some inter- interviews or panels you were on where people would say, "Well, people don't people just want to do this? Aren't they just joining and just using religion?" Isn't mostly the the tribal conflicts and economics and, and politics? And I'm and I have to think, well, no, I, I'm I'm in a region where we have all of that. Down to American intervention and religiosity, and no, not even close. I, I can't imagine la- Latinos having something like an ISIS or even close to. There is obviously political militias, but th- obviously they don't. Uh, they don't rule their lives, and especially anybody who's read Graham's book, they're not hanging every decision of their life on religious texts and th- it, the call to do it is because of the religion it, there's just nothing like that uh, wh- what do you think how how, f- how close to those aspects are actually responsible versus the religion
1: um, we can find cases where there is uh, political unrest but no religion we can find places where there's religion but no political unrest and none of these things is is um, Uniquely predictive of whether there's going to be uh, Something as horrific as the rise of something like like Isis. I mean when people say it it has to do with American intervention you correctly point out that that Latin America has massive amounts of 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 American intervention and has had You know massive amounts of death and even genocidal politics in in some parts, especially of of, of central America But it hasn't quite Reached the 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 ISIS level, so I think any kind of suggestion that there is a single variable that that is causing these things to happen is it's just always wrong. Um, even within the history of Islam, if you say, well, ISIS arose because of of American intervention or because of poverty, there there's no shortage of other um, sources of of you know, and there's no shortage of other examples of places with lots of poverty. And then there are places like Saudi Arabia in the 18th century, where there was no United States for most of that time to intervene, and in, and of course no actual intervention, and yet there was the rise of Wahhabism, and there were you know, the equivalent of pogroms against uh, against uh, Sufis and 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 uh, other minorities in that area. So the attempt to to pin this on one thing is always, I think, a sign of of uh, wishful political thinking on the person who's, who's, who's speaking and often a sign of of bad faith. I I don't think you could talk about the rise of ISIS without talking about the American intervention, but you know, it's nonetheless, when the, when the United States intervened, there was already a guy named Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi who was pretty sure of, of what he, what he wanted to do. He was already radicalized. He was, he was ready to, uh, to step in and, you know, if he ever had the opportunity, what he got was the opportunity, not the not the idea. And that, I think, is is almost always uh, a sign that the person has has not thought things through. If he, if he's trying to say it's just religion, just politics, ISIS itself, ironically, is is rather clear-eyed about these things and says it's religion, it's politics, it's state building, it's all of these things together. And the idea that that you would just choose your least favorite aspect of this whole multivariate project and say, that's what it is, is, uh, is loony.
0: But is, isn't it also equally loony to completely leave out religion? Correct. But th- yeah, that, absolutely. That, that seems to be more common than the person. Cause I don't think there's actually almost anyone who would say that it's entirely religion. I think most people who want to include religion say, well, yeah, you, you have all those aspects. You have economics, you have politics, You have all of that, but a major part of this is religion. It's actually much more common to find the person who says, no, 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 it's all those accents, a lot of variables, but just nothing to do with religion. I find that person is more common.
1: I I agree, actually, that, that, I mean, especially among uh, sophisticated uh, people, intelligent, uh, elite commentary, you you will find many more people who who will say it has nothing to do with, with religion, then we'll say it has only to do with religion. That, that the idea that it has only to do with religion is is, um,
0: that's pretty French. Almost, and very, very, very rarely is that any kind of academic point of view that it's only religion.
1: But yeah, yeah, you'll you'll very quickly find if you find someone who who says who is like me, identified with the position that religion matters a lot, you will effortlessly find that that person. Has in my case and in others said yeah, of of course it matters that the United States intervened of course it matters that that uh, there is a uh, uh, you know histories of mis of misgovernance predatory governance It's the fact that those things matter doesn't mean that it doesn't matter that that um, that that religion is the way that it is and that these as they say the viruses of the mind have 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 um, become an epidemic. I mean, to give you one example of of this, uh, there is uh, a friend of mine, Megan Phelps Roper, who's writing a book right now about her time with the Westboro Baptist Church. Um, Westboro Baptist Church is this this fundamentalist Protestant sect that uh, used to picket the funerals of uh, American soldiers in the United States because they thought the death of those soldiers was The Wrath of God because of American tolerant attitudes toward homosexuality. So completely nutty group. Uh, She left that group and she wrote to me. I had interviewed her while she was in it. And she said, yeah, you're that guy who interviewed me. And she said, I read your stuff on ISIS. And that sounded shockingly similar to the group that I recently defected from. And I, I asked her, why is it that Westboro... Her church never did anything violent, even though they thought abortion was murder and, and so forth, and thought that gays should be stoned. And she said, "Well, the Bible tells us that, uh, um, scripturally, it tells us tells us to to uh, not cast the first stone unless we are sinless, and we are not." And which was a, a an amazing thing to me because it it, it showed that, yeah, in this case. There is ex- almost exactly the same kind of moral prohibitions, legal prohibitions, and, and exhortations to execution in the law, but the particulars of the religion mattered, and they mattered in ways that could be articulated by a member of of, of the group. Uh, the idea that these things are just interchangeable, that they're not a variable that that, have, that could be applied at all, uh, is is pretty obviously wrong. Uh, I think at this stage, after these paroxysms of violence in the Middle East over ISIS and, you know, popular debates over the role of religion, I, I'm hoping that there is some follow up in the, in the next decade or so with really sophisticated analysis of what the role of that of religion is. When do, do, does the content of belief uh, get um, converted into action? Because right now there's, there's a lot of, uh, it's just a lot of hand waving and wishful thinking about, about, about what that is. And many of the things that you described, the kind of the idea that there's a monotonic relationship between, uh, education and, and religious violence or poverty and religious, religious violence. It just, it's just, that's clearly not so. But what that relationship is, is has not been described adequately.
0: Uh, can I give you some examples? I, I think are very good about um, the relationship between religion and action. And I, you know, we could we, speaking about ISIS, we might go over way too many negative things about Islam. But I would like to give some positive things about Islam, which I think are very telling of the relationship between belief and action. And that is one people often point out that every single country in the world that has a law for death of apostasy is islamic and, yeah. <laughs> and and that's a that's true but then there you could also say that every country in the world that completely bans abortion entirely and i think there's about Six, but they're going down now. Chile was one of them. They're, they're all Christian entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, and that tells you something very interesting because it's not intuitive that if countries are more impoverished, more theocratic, they don't automatically necessarily do things that we relate to conservatism, especially in the West. We think oh, conservative or anti-abortion. Therefore, if a country is very impoverished, very theocratic, very conservative, they'll of, course, they'll of course ban abortion. But no, no matter how impoverished the Muslim country has gotten, no matter how dictatorial it get, they could ban abortion in a lot of these countries, many of them. There's over 50 mm-hmm. Muslim majority countries. There's there's no reason why they couldn't do that. They don't do it because there's not exactly a scriptural command to do it. Um, but in Christianity, that is more firm, and in Chile was one of the countries that had it completely banned, and it's not even close to being the most impoverished country in Latin America. It's actually been the most biggest economic power for the last twenty years. About, so it's not necessarily that people are going to. Oh, and maybe one more example I could even give. You probably heard of a uh, triple talak, where. Muslims yes. get a, a divorce, and this was recently kind of challenged in India, and it's kind and it's not a lot of people challenge it even It's it's necessarily Quranic and completely attributable to all of Islam. But triple talaq is that the husband simply says, "I think I want a divorce, I want a divorce, I want a divorce," and then they're divorced. And the women can't do this. Now, I, in the news, people were saying this like this is the most you know egregious, sexist, backwards way of thinking. But from my point of view they sounded more advanced than Chile was up until very recently. Chile didn't have divorce at all right. until 2005. <laughs> and, and before 2005, the husband couldn't say, I want a divorce three times and they get a divorce. No, there was no divorce because it, it was a deeply Catholic country. And that's awfully often very shocking for people, especially if you know how advanced Chile is, to think that so something so basic as divorce wasn't even in law until 2005. So even in comparison with triple talak, some advanced Catholic majority countries are more backwards. And that, you, you again, you can't necessarily ascribe too much to economics or, or, or politics. It really is a product of Almost just faith in, in some of those cases. Now, it, it could there are things that you I would attribute much more to politics or poverty, depending on the topic. But for example, that of divorce in Chile was, I mean, entirely almost uh, a religious issue. Um, so I think it's it's often a good thing to point to not what. Islam necessarily gets wrong due to their association of religion, but sometimes they actually do better. I think there's another statistic that I saw in Pew Research that um, the statistic on approval of the use of contraception is actually much higher in many Muslim countries than even Israel. And I think Mm -hmm. it was about the same as the United States and Turkey. As far as the the population's approval of the use of contraception, but many Muslim countries approved more of it than even statistically in Israel. So, and that is again a lot to do with their relation to, to their belief.
1: Yeah, it, it has something to do with with belief, but also the modalities of 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 history and of text. And I think that there's often an assumption, at least in the countries that I come from, that, that there is just a, a human spectrum between liberalism, maybe secularism, and then conservatism and and religiosity on on the other end. And in the United States, that that shows up in, say, the abortion debate, contraception much less so here, of course, but um, you could say in, uh reproductive technologies whether you can stem cell research, use stem cells for stem cell research that that kind of thing is is thought of as being on, on a, a straightforward left right spectrum and there's expectation that muslim countries w- would would follow along um that is not so um, muslim countries have been much more willing to to have what i would think of as uh from my relatively secular perspective as uh enlightened rational attitudes towards things like uh kidney chain kidney donations uh kidney markets even in in iran uh there is of course a much less developed uh uh biotech sector uh in in muslim countries but there they have many many fewer hang-ups about things that will will likely improve the lives of of um you know, our lives and the lives of, of, of our descendants as time goes by. So it, it's it's not a straightforward spectrum. Um, we could even point to things in ISIS uh, where... Um, <laughs> Don't tell me ISIS is progressive. <laughs> yeah, there's some ways in in which you'd find an ISIS supporter who, like John George, List, um, this American I mentioned before from Texas has be, become a relatively high-ranking figure in the ISIS propaganda apparatus, apparatus uh, he has issued fatwas about cannabis, saying smoking pot is not really something that that Islam should forbid. And he's these learned essays about the role of pot and in the time of the early caliphs and saying, look, we we seem to have just uh, we Muslims have seem seem to have just Followed along with misguided policies in Western countries about marijuana, but actually it's, it seems to have been, um, not forbidden by the earliest Muslims. And so if we were to forbid it, we would be creating a law that, that, that is not God's. Um, so it seems odd to say, and it's, it's not as if it's the official policy of the Islamic state right now that, that, uh, pot is, should be legally available, but there, there are some forms of radical Islam where uh, that have got well ahead of, of the United States in, in what I would think of as an enlightened drug policy. None of these things can be taken for granted, and occasionally you'll find something like that that's surprising uh, in the kind of openness and, and um, dare I say, rationality that the Islamic State shows.
0: Going back to the topic of recruitment, I wanted to talk about the role women play, and I want to mention um, a skit from the BBC. I don't know if you saw it. it. It caused a lot of controversy when it came out. They had this kind of comedy skit called Real Housewives of ISIS.
1: Yes, I saw it.
0: Right. So they were mocking Housewives of ISIS and... I'm not sure how to describe it but you could you could look it up and find the video it's very short. Um when that came out, I even posted it and both the articles and the comments I got to my post were kind of surprising where people were offended for women in Isis. Now this isn't in the even in the skit, they made it pretty clear that these are not women that were taken as slaves, these were women who joined consciously by choice. And even the comments reflected that they weren't even trying to challenge the fact, like that, these that they were, were talking about wives who are slaves. We're talking about women who chose to go, but there was a lot of mention of, well, these women were groomed and they they were tricked and basically describing all women in ISIS as victims of circumstance or Mm -hmm. being tricked into it. And I felt that was taking a lot of responsibility off these women and almost infantilizing the women who chose to go to think, well, if their gender is male and they chose to go, they're totally responsible but if they're women, ah, uh, you know, the poor women, they must have been tricked. But maybe I'm wrong. And I haven't really had the opportunity to even even through videos or interviews to hear too much from uh, women who have been in ISIS. A few, a few cases. But I want to know your impression of this. Is there is there something to that assumption that most of these women really didn't know what they were getting into?
1: Lalo, your intuitions are exactly correct. The women who have gone to ISIS, there is no evidence that they have uh, had less agency than men, that they have had different desires than men in going there, that they knew less about what they were getting into. If anything, you you find that women – partially because they don't have a battlefield role, have been used more in recruitment and are well aware of what ISIS is and have been you know, telling the world about it. So they they have not been ignorant. They've been um, major movers in getting people to go there. We're talking like 20% of the people who have traveled to ISIS, 15, 20% have been women. Uh, and that's very much by design. ISIS said, we're creating a full, demographically full society. We need women. We need women to do the things that women do. Biologically, and then also because of the gender roles that they they assign in the workplace, you know, to be gynecologists, to be teachers, to be family makers—that's Th- what we need women for. And we 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 need to need to have both sexes. Unlike, say, Al Qaeda, which pretty much just was looking for fighters and therefore needed women only insofar as they they might stash a bomb somewhere or or ferry uh, documents or materials. I think the discomfort that people had over the real housewives of ISIS uh, is understandable. I mean, there's that there's a famous line from from Nietzsche where he says, a, a laugh is an epitaph on the death of a feeling. Uh, the idea that you'd laugh about this means that you, you've given up the deep revulsion that you should be feeling toward the project of ISIS in general or sex slavery. So I, that's there's, there's some wisdom to that. I I have to say, though, when I was writing my book, when I was investigating ISIS, the elimination of humor felt dishonest. There is so much pleasure that is taken by jihadists uh, in being rebels, in being righteous, in the camaraderie they have. Uh, just the ironies that they live with, as people from Western countries who are joining this insane death cult in the desert, that that to say that there's no humor, uh, it, it, or to treat them as as having no humor, uh, is to miss the point. Is to misunderstand the group. Um, you you have to show these ironies because that's even to 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 convey why someone would, would want to go to isis you have to say that like isis has a sense of humor isis has the same sense of memes and so forth on on social media that you or i might have and they mo- weaponize them they mobilize them and they use them for recruitment if, if you pretend that there's nothing funny that isis has ever said or that comes up in an every in the everyday life of an isis recruit then uh you've 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 failed your readers so i it, i like to um you know among the reviews that my book got one of my favorite was the one that that admitted i think kind of grudgingly that that mine was the funniest book ever written about global jihad i i, I took that as as a as a very deep compliment um cuz it meant that that um i possibly had got things right
0: Um, Do you have any uh, opinions on the current, what looks like very sectarian division in politics uh, between the left and the right that seems to be concentrating a lot on things that seem like minutia compared to the Islamic State, people arguing over gender pronouns and feminism It's a very odd thing for me to to see people who claim to deeply care about other cultures, um, religious minorities, racial minorities, and to know something like ISIS is going on and then to what looks like kind of lose their minds over a teacher saying the wrong gender pronoun and even want it maybe to be banned as hate speech. Knowing that in you're living in a world where ISIS and FGM and honor killings are, are going on, I don't know how to reconcile that hysteria. Do you have any opinions on it?
1: Uh, fewer fewer opinions than you might hope for. I mean, I I, uh, I do teach at an American university, which has been one of the centers for for uh, some of the recent um, unrest, um, and. I'll say, first of all, that there is a, I think, widespread belief, especially among conservatives in the United States, that universities are totally crazy, uh, that students are totally crazy. And that is not true. Um, The vast, vast majority of students I have interacted with uh, are totally sane individuals who make the most reasonable demands of me and, and of each other. Uh, so we're already talking about a controversy that that's, it's really a few people, um, and often a few people whose, whose opinions and whose views are painted as more extreme than they are. Now, the, the bigger question that I, I think you're asking though, is how can we fight over these small things? Well, there are massive injustices that are happening in the world and um i'd say first of all that that the existence of massive injustices and in horrific organizations like isis um of course that doesn't excuse the existence of of minor injustices but i think what we need to do is is be clear-eyed about the magnitude of 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 these things and there has been i think a, a unrealistic inflation of, of the injustices these you know micro injustices that that um that are being being pointed to but that said I, I you know on particular issues i don't i don't have really strong opinions but i i i i i think that that um
0: you're trying not to get in trouble here <laughs>
1: No, I, I'm not, I'm not hesitating to give an opinion that I, that I actually have. I'm hesitating to, to, to manufacture an opinion that I don't have on the spot. I, 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 I think of these things as, as, as totally separable. Um, and they, what they share is a, a kind of, um, uh, like the, the actual issues and the issues as they're understood in their presentation to a mass public, turn out to be pretty different. Like w- when when I started writing about uh, ISIS after my, my big Atlantic piece in early 2015, there was all this discussion about whether ISIS is Islamic or not. And I was happy to take part in that discussion, but I would've been happier to take part in other ones because it seemed like actually a settled fact. And what we were really trying to find out is what the the nature of ISIS's role within the Islamic tradition, not whether it had a role within the Islamic tradition. Similarly, we we talk about on the on the case of the Yale campus Halloween costumes. We talk about in the case of Jordan Peterson and the University of Toronto about gender pronouns, and these are, are small skirmishes in a in a much bigger. Um, Set of dynamics about race, about gender, that I, I think actually are important topics. But by by concentrating on these semi-manufactured uh, incidents, we 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 kind of do ourselves an injustice. I, I I feel I feel bad both for the people who, who perceive themselves as suffering, and the people who are actually suffering, and the people who are are uh, victims of of internet witch hunts. We, we just haven't figured out how to modulate our, 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 sense of, of outrage and to, uh, like figure out what is, uh, what's epiphenomenal and what, what's like a, a, a deeper set, set of, 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 uh, of claims of injustice. Um, yeah, this, this seems to be a, a kind of universal affliction whenever something gets, gets, uh, rises to the level of being a, uh, a uh, a, a a a cause for you know public consternation.
0: I was actually recently on um the podcast "We the People" with uh, Joshua Epps, and I I said something very similar to what you said about American students. I, I also got the impression, although it's not, I did study in the United States, but I haven't really had experience in universities recently. But I was under the impression that I didn't think that the American student has gone as crazy as the news and the internet li- leads you to believe. And I think that mostly that it was a change in power dynamics due to social media. So my basically my theory is that before the internet, we were afraid of our teachers. Our teachers had control over our grades and we had to make our teachers happy. And there's not a lot of power we had over our teachers thanks to social media, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, people can write a tweet within seconds that could go viral, accusing their teacher of racism or sexism or showing a video they didn't like, um, that that excuses racism, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And it could be that that one student in a university of 10, 20,000 students is leans very far left or right in politics And that one tweet could go viral to hundreds of thousands of people, be then written about in Salon and Upworthy videos. And then that person, due to the attention they got, will end up on a CNN interview. Now, all of this attention they got could be... Not at all done by students in the university. Maybe nobody in the university retweeted it. Maybe nobody agrees with them. But the larger world on social media blew it up. And due to the attention, universities get nervous and like, oh, God, this teacher is being accused of racism on CNN. We have to appease. We must fire him. So, And now students know they can do that. Enough time has passed like, oh, I, I, I have this power over my teacher. I can do this to them. And I think that's intoxicating to a younger person. And on top of that, which I think is even worse, which is a product of the last five years, is that people have figured out how to monetize the outrage. And then people have figured out how to monetize the outrage about the outrage. So somebody gets mad at that student and his outrage and makes tweets and videos about it, and they can monetize it. And when you monetize it, now it's not just a question of power, but it's your income from month to month. So you have to produce yes. it. So this is this has gotten really ugly. And I think it's due to the fact that we, the world made this thing called the internet and nobody figured out any rules for it. And nobody knew that right. was going to affect our lives.
1: I, I could give you an example. And you're very much on the right track when you think about how people are, are making money off of this. I mean, if... Uh, and it doesn't mean they're, they're creating the incident, but they're parasitic on it. So if Fox News is able to fill 15 minutes talking about some incident on campus, 15 minutes filled on a network as popular as Fox News is a very valuable thing. It means they don't have to, you know, find something else. So it, it's it's very important
0: by cost effective you mean like they they don't have to mit- send a camera crew to Afghanistan to film and buy plane tickets and hotel rooms they can take a tweet and talk about it
1: you can be absolutely certain if if there is some supposed liberal excess on campus there is a fox news producer who's saying oh, thank god for that i don't have to find something else to talk about that's my that's my job for the day is to fill that 15 minutes and i just did it they did it for me so it's a very attractive thing to spin up into something more than it started as but the other aspect that I would point to is the uncontrolled nature of the penalties that are, that are being ex, are being um, being levied against people for for actual transgressions. So, what do I mean by this? At, at Yale University, where I teach, um, there was very recently an African American student who was found sleeping in a common room, and the cops were summoned by a white student and. Why were the cops summoned? Because she thought this person was a trespasser. Couldn't possibly be a student. It sounded like a pretty racist thing to me. And I think it was. It was, I myself have been the victim of racist calls to Yale PD. I'm half Chinese and people have made assumptions about me on the basis of of, of that. And uh, those incidents have passed, you know, have not, those were in the kind of pre-social media mob era at least it it, it hadn't it hadn't reached the heights that it hadn't in in any case i didn't tweet about it but in the case of the person who was called recently called on recently she put something on facebook which it was her right to do and which i probably would have done too she had no idea i'm sure that it was going to turn into something that was so big that the student who called on her who again committed what, what i think is almost certainly a racist act That person's life uh, is going to be affected forever by this. She will perhaps not be able to get a job, um, perhaps not even be able to finish her degree because of the opprobrium that she'll feel publicly on campus. So is that the penalty that we should want for someone who does something outrageously racist? I don't know. It it seems a little close to to being... uh, you know, a life sentence of sorts. But also we
0: only got in that case, I mean, I, cause I agree with you in, in the case you're describing my perception of, of reading that story was that it, I couldn't really see any other angle more than it was. It was racist. Really. There, there wasn't really too many more angles to that story, but then there's a lot of other stories and maybe somebody even seeing this kind of story could think, well, what if I just accuse somebody of racism because I don't like them? And I, I I have seen those kind of cases and it worries me that you can get just one sided commentary on a Facebook post or in a tweet and affect somebody's life that much before even getting more evidence.
1: Yes, there's nothing nothing approaching due process. There's no no evidence uh except for the the raw video itself, which is not it's just a good start but is 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 not enough and i i think it's uh we're just nowhere close to being able to 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 modulate these things so that a person who deserves to be shamed should be shamed um but there are degrees of penalty and and also degrees of contrition that 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 you know that should be taken into account. I have no idea what the attitude is of of the person who made that call um is she chastened or just, um, or just re- regretful that, 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 that this was noticed? I, I have no idea, but, but it, it seems, seems like a broken system when the accusation can be made even against a guilty person and the penalty is effectively, uh, unlimited. Um, I, you also made a great point about, you know, young people wielding these tools young people for, you know, certainly when I was in college, it was very common for, for us to, to have moral outrage often about things that, that, uh, one should have moral outrage about, uh, you know, in not my generation, but one before it might've been apartheid in South Africa, uh, workers being paid a living wage, things like this. And, you know, students would you know of all generations have done whatever they can to bully their way into seeing what they can what they can get seeing how they can first of all what they just what they can do and then second of all how how can they use that power to improve the world so you, we shouldn't expect students today to to be any less interested in the extent of their power what we just don't know now is what that extent is it seems to be it seems to be in some cases uh unlimited uh when it's when it's exercised in the these kind of dubious social media inflected ways
0: children with unlimited power i, I just don't like the sound of that it's just not gonna, it's not gonna to honestly
1: be anyone with unlimited power seems, is is pretty frightening to me but um yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, again, internet is a great tool. I, you know, it's it's given me the power to communicate with people I otherwise would have no way of communicating with, but the people are going to abuse it, and I I think we're just now seeing year by year the amount of abuse that can go out with it. And I don't know the rules to it because people are very happy to call the internet you know a free place where open ideas can can thrive, but unfortunately that leads to a lot of things that we now call like fake news or moral outrage or just social justice. And those things are not always outside of evidence and courts of law, the best places to come to judgment.
1: Now, let me take this back to ISIS because Mm -hmm. when, when you look at how uh, mainstream Muslim scholars view ISIS, it's very much with the same, um, Concern about the way that processes that have modulated how Islam is practiced have been snipped out of the loop by ISIS. They they observe the way ISIS is a, a bunch of young people, uh, many of them very clever, who have taken the tradition and run to this area where nobody else w- was was uh, you know had a monopoly on force, that, and then have created that monopoly for themselves, and are making. Um, big pronouncements about the fate of of the Muslim Ummah without any of the uh, deference to seniority that they would have been forced to have in an institution like al-Azhar, the, the main institution of Sunni learning in Egypt. it It's, to, to those mainstream Muslim scholars, frightening in much the same way, that nobody's stopping these kids out there from having really extreme views. And the kids are intoxicated by the fact that can have those views and then, what do you know, finally be able to actually enact them. Um, it's the same concern about the, the kind of generational changes and worry about where does this end that I think is, is uh, concerning to, to, to um, you know, the kind of entrenched generation in, in the United States about youngsters here.
0: One of, I mean, since we're going back to ISIS, one of the things that I found shocking reading your book was how familiar I, war, I was with the stories and the arguments and the ideas, considering I haven't really spoken with jihadis or ISIS supporters. I've spoken with m- way over 90% ex-Muslims who were just brought up in some kind of Muslim household. But they say so many similar things about when they were Muslim, about hearing stories of conquest and violence and that there will be eventually a a caliphate, um, that there should be a separation between Muslims and and non-Muslims, that Shia are not really Muslims and committing a kind of takfir uh, Mm -hmm. with, with those branches. And it seems that a lot of the people I spoke to came to the realization at some point either through themselves or other friends becoming more extremists, that Islam does call for more, either more fundamentalism or violence or or something. There comes like a a turning point in their lives. Um, This can be avoided, I guess, if you live in a very small Muslim community that is more, secularized like such as the United States but in the Middle East where people I spoke to in Jordan, egypt or Libya etc they reached that crossroads and they're like okay I, so islam does call for a lot of these things what do i do and basically you spoke to the people who went down the road of well then i have to do them and then i speak to the people who say well no i i can't i i won't do them i think they're immoral and i'm leaving the religion yes and i I worry that a lot of people think that the ideas of ISIS occurred in their own bubble when actually a lot of the ideas that ISIS espouses are more common than people think. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that their parents are training them to be jihadists, but there is a principal element of... Thinking that is Islamic rules are superior to secular rules and government rules that you should Mm -hmm. think of yourself first as a Muslim before thinking of yourself as the nationality you are to think of every Muslim uh, across the world as part of the Ummah, They're your brother and those who are not are are not the idea of the other branches, whether they're minority branches like uh, Shia or Sufis not being really Muslims. I hear a lot of those things. And then many of the ISIS members are saying a lot of those things. They just are the ones who kind of decide, well, I'm going to put this into action.
1: Yeah, that, that I think that, that's that's right. You, you, there, is, there is a sense, and I'm quickly going to qualify this, in which the Islamic State is singing from the same song sheet as other Muslims. The sense in which they're, they're working from the same tradition, ISIS wouldn't make any sense. It wouldn't appeal to anybody if if it didn't have some shared sense of a tradition that that uh, that was a, a tradition that was shared w- with Muslims as a whole. Now, what does that actually mean? That there are aspects of the ISIS program um, that yes, ISIS accentuates uh, from mainstream Islam. Or that it kind of uh, it actualizes. It says, "All right, let's take this serious. Let's let's really do it. If we really think that Muslims are brothers and sisters, and non-Muslims are not, even if they're thousands of miles away and don't speak the same language, then that means we have to have a state. That means that we have no less of a claim on creating a state than you know Israel has than any number of other countries that with much less that binds their citizens together." Now. That said, many of the things that ISIS points to that are familiar to uh, non-ISIS Muslims are things that, although they're in the tradition, are j- just are not focused on by, by the average Muslim. So much as uh, a lot of, say, Christians would be shocked by some of the things they find in the Bible, many Muslims would be shocked by some of the things they find in any comprehensive book of Islamic law. They had no idea that particular types of final financial transactions were outlawed. They knew no pork, they knew no maybe no alcohol, whether or not they observed that. But did they know uh, that there were particular rules for when you're allowed to sell a sex slave and when not? Did they know there were particular rules about whether sebians were considered people of the book? On average no so it's it's very much like if you if you ask a christian you know turn to leviticus you find anything odd about it and then they turn and they find that you can't enter a synagogue if you have a groin injury and they say yeah well it turns out yeah there was something odd in there it nonetheless is a book that's been part of their tradition and that they had long understood even before they actually read it in its details to be theirs so when, when ISIS finally comes to someone and says, yeah, open up that book, open up that book of fiqh, open up the Quran and look at that, that verse and see if you can interpret any, it any other way, then yeah, they're, they're tapping into something that many Muslims were kind of had a dim consciousness of. And then ISIS, uh, sometimes with context and sometimes without context, then says there's a way for you to make that. So in the modern era,
0: Hmm. I, I spoke with um an ex-Muslim from Morocco named Khaled Baroui. He referred to a phenomenon in Islam that he feels is particular to the religion that he calls it has a factory reset button. So Islam starts to accumulate a lot of added code to it, a lot of new ideas. But essentially, the religion should be practiced as is. And that's, that's stipulated in the religion. So it's it will... There's so, there's always going to be some quantity of Muslims who are going to recognize that the religion has changed a little bit too much, and they're going to bring it back to the factory uh, status of it, where it's just you know running the the pure program with no <laughs> extra code. Um, do you think where that Islam is kind of in a loop where it's 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 going to be very hard to break from it constantly going back to its its a uh, factory reset?
1: I love the metaphor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there, yeah, it's a good I metaphor, isn't it? There's in a number of ways. It's a good metaphor. There, it's it has uh, it has some history. Not not that specific metaphor, but the idea of renewal is, is something that that is a long tradition within Islam. That every uh, what is it? Every two hundred years or so, there is someone who's a renewer uh, who brings back the religion to itself. Um, that is the factory reset. And that's what, that's exactly what ISIS thinks it's doing. Um, what does the reset consist of? It, it, it consists, I think frequently of a return to the original texts, a return to the original history and, and practices of, of the Sahaba, the, the companions of the, of the prophet and the, and the prophet himself. So yeah, it, it it's something that it just naturally suggests itself. From uh, the way that the the religion is organized in a in a way that perhaps other religions do not, and I think that the most effective voices about what that or to to kind kind of fight against the the factory reset to what's assumed to be a jihadist tradition are the ones who say, yeah, once you've pressed factory done the factory reset, then. It's not obvious, actually, that the that the default condition is is to fight. You might do the factory reset and find that that it's something else. And again, as as someone who's writing about this from outside of the community, uh, I have na- no actual view about whether the, one way is right or another is. But there is a long tradition of Muslims who who would say that a quote unquote literal rendition of of the quran and the example of the prophet does not necessarily mean fighting even if it's if fighting is something that the prophet did which all muslims agree he did and that that's that's what i think is one of the more fruitful lines of of opposition to isis is to say you you know you've you've got a you've got a you've got a way of reading these texts uh that has precedent muslims have done this before it's not totally crazy to to say that yes the prophet muhammad had slaves had sex with some of his slaves killed people and therefore you should too but the factory reset may very well take you to another interpretation you you, you can't really reset to a, a state of zero interpretation and if if you understood if you understand that at the very beginning you as soon as you've done the reset you you all your work is ahead of you in interpretation, then you might come to a conclusion different from ISIS's.
0: You've said a number of times that, well, as an outsider and as somebody who's not Muslim, you know, I can only have a, a certain kind of opinion. I don't know if necessarily that's a necessarily true uh, about having an, an opinion on on Islam, because I notice a constant problem of hearing lot of debates between people who let's say are completely outside the tradition weren't born muslim never were muslim people like you and me i saw for example i listened to example um a debate between a person who studies uh islam independently his name is bill warner i don't follow him too much but i heard this debate where that he had with um a director of quilliam named adam dean uh-huh. and It was a very frustrating debate, I think, for everyone, because Bill Warner is trying to study Islam as it's practiced in the world, especially with concentration on how the radicals practice it and focusing on that because that's what he worries about. And then Adam Dean just couldn't, would never accept the, the view that he was presenting. But Bill Warner's view is always the view he has to take from someone else. So he has to take the view from ISIS. He has to take the view from Mossad and bin Laden and analyze mm-hmm. it and work in the world. Okay, okay, this is what they think. I need to break it down. I need to see what, what's happening here because people are getting hurt. People are getting killed.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: then Adam Dean is constantly, well, that's not what I think. That's not that's not the Islam I practice. That's not the Islam I think it should be.
1: So for for an outsider, I I, w- I would make a distinction here. I can't say what the right way to be a Muslim is as an outsider. Warner can't say that. It's it, but can it, Adam Jean sim- say that?
0: Because he can only really say Islam, and that was the problem. He was speaking for Islam for himself and what he think it should be. I don't know how many people actually would agree with his vision of it.
1: Right. He can he can speak for himself. He he cannot speak for Islam, but he can make a normative claim. I mean, the definition of you know what, what does it mean to not be a Muslim? It means to have no view of what the right way to be a muslim is because you think that all views of how to be a muslim are wrong that's what it means to be a non-muslim what i think an outsider can do though and this is what i do a lot is to say what muslims have thought or think today i can say historically muslims have had very specific codified views about how finance should be conducted how what what dietary views all of these things without saying that one view is right or another one is right, I can, I can tell a Muslim, as a non-Muslim, that, look, this is a thing that Muslims have done historically. And you may not like it. You may think that it's the wrong way to do it. But you're wrong if you're saying that Muslims haven't done this uh, or do this today. So I, I think that coming to some understanding of that point would clear up debates like the one you're describing.
0: Didn't you have that same problem though with um Hamza Youssef that you're trying to talk about what you've understood from Isis and he just got very frustrated trying to explain what Islam is but essentially you're just hearing what Islam is to him and it could be larger much larger than than just him it could go it, it could involve a large circle of Muslims but as a journalist and what you're trying to do is study that group.
1: Yeah, and uh, so we, in in some ways he's got a slightly larger claim on things than than that than you're describing cuz you know most Muslims historically have been sufis or ash'arites, not ISIS members. And in that sense he he is with the majority, but I would I would often in my conversation with him come back to, well, you know ISIS doesn't see things that way. And he would say, well, here's the argument against the way that they see it and whether or not it's impossible for me to be persuaded because I don't have the ISIS view, and but I'm sure ISIS would be unpersuaded by it. it it's um, He can tell me what the historical arguments have been against the ISIS position, and that's sort of where it has to end uh, eventually these are are matters of faith you know there 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 are postulates that that isis doesn't accept that are part of his argument and that's that's the end of it i mean there's one of the one of my favorite analogs to to this debate is actually in judaism um, there was a debate between the two groups that are uh, now known as the karaites and the rabbinites and Rabbanites are, were victorious. They won. Uh, and the Karaites, legally speaking, were the ISIS of, of Judaism. That is, they were the ones who looked to the text and said, the text will tell us what to do. We don't need interpreters. We don't need a Talmud. We just need the Torah. And if we read it, a literal reading of it will, will, will guide us. If God wants us to do something, why wouldn't he just tell us <laughs> in the most straightforward way? That's how we should read the text. Jews have pretty much universally, there's some Karaites do still exist, pretty much universally come to the, the position that is analogous to the one of Hamza Yusuf in Islam, which is, y- you actually can't just do that. If you try to interpret it literally, you'll get it wrong every time. You need instead to have this scholarly apparatus of uh, uh, rabbis who think these things over and interpret them. And without that, you will get it wrong. There's no question you'll get it wrong and the argument was one um with some very clever intra religious uh um moves that they for reasons that either intellectual or political ha- have have settled the issue within Judaism which suggests that it might it could be settled within Islam too but you shouldn't mistake that that victory for uh one that's um you know, it's not like a scientific victory where, where the Karaites were, were just wrong about the way that they interpreted the Torah or the way they thought the Torah could be interpreted. No, they, they lost the debate. So debates can be won and lost, but they, they don't get won and lost like matters of science. They get won and lost over the course of thousands of years, sometimes with great suffering and, and, and bloodshed. And that, that may be how it happens in Islam. That may be how it's happening in Islam.
0: What is the state of ISIS today?
1: Uh, ISIS today uh, is still a territorial entity; still exists, mm-hmm. controlling cities, towns, um, mostly on the Syrian side of the Syrian-Iraqi border. Um, there's a couple ways to look at it. ISIS is much smaller and less powerful than it was till recently. It no longer controls big population centers. Uh, another way to look at it though is that nobody really controls those big population centers raqqa mosul are piles of rubble um and in those piles of rubble are many isis corpses and many non-isis corpses and isis having fallen back to to the desert uh is still powerful enough to to wreak a lot of havoc it's not anywhere close to being to being defeated better than it was but um, but still a real danger but the thing that ISIS will often point out is first of all they expected this to happen they'll say we knew we were going to get beaten back and we were prepared for it the second thing they'll always point out is if you look at how many of our numbers in 2012 2011 they we were down to hundreds of people and now we still control towns and cities of tens of thousands so if you think that you've defeated us then how defeated were we back then? Uh, we were so undefeated back then that we were able to, to um, raise an entire army and control massive um, cities and, 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 and towns uh, just a couple years later. So I think, yeah, ISIS is, is not where it was before, but it's still a huge danger.
0: Um, so the last topic I wanted to touch on to get your your thoughts on it is reform, and I know reform means a lot of things to a lot of people, and there has been reform in Islam throughout throughout the centuries, and even recent forms of Islam in the last century or two, such as Ahmadiyya Islam or the Baha'i and and such. But what we talk about now, reform in the West, is certain Muslims who are extremely liberal who want to adapt Islam to almost every liberal democratic value in the West. And I think this sounds very appealing to people in the West. It sounds like it sounds plausible and it sounds like it's coming from people who know what they're talking about. At first, I, 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 it sounded like a good idea to me. However, the more I investigate, the more I talk to people, I just get the idea that it's more the inverse, that it seems that innovation in Islam, particularly for Sunnis, which are the overwhelming majority of Muslims, close to 90%, reject the idea of change in Islam very drastically. Now, the reason that people are even pushing for reform is because of extremism, is because of terrorism, basically. So essentially, we're talking about reforming terrorists with this. Now, a good example of how difficult that would be is you could go even back to your book where you talk with uh, Western Islamic scholars such as Hamza Youssef or Yazid uh, Qadi who are pretty fundamentalist in in their practice of religion for Western standards. They're very conservative. And ISIS doesn't even consider them to be Muslim. And I don't think we would even want necessarily for people to become as Muslim as they are. It doesn't seem like there's any appeal of Western ideas of reform towards Islam. Not just that it's unappealing, but it seems like it's one of the gravest sins, not just for the extremists, but for most Muslims, Wait, how, uh, how do you think the Muslims you spoke to, because, again, essentially, when we talk about this reform, we're trying to solve terrorism. How do you think ISIS would respond to this Western innovation of Islam?
1: Yeah, uh, ISIS uh, doesn't just dislike the, the Muslims who you named Yasser Kali and um, Hamza Yusuf, but actually has published articles with their faces in crosshairs, saying that these are, are specifically named people who who need to be got rid of. So they really hate them, and these are the most prominent Muslim scholars in in the United States. And to
0: be clear, they're not reformers; they're just scholars who are, I, from my point of view, would lean very conservative as far as values.
1: Yeah, Hamza Yusuf, yeah. in, in particular, the conservative is exactly the right word to describe him. He is socially conservative if we were to put him on a conventional American political spectrum. Um, he, you know, he's also, though, in the way that he suggests Islam be practiced, it, it's pretty much, let's read the texts of the last thousand years and, and then we'll figure things out. It's it's not, let's figure out a new way to be Muslim it's let's figure out the old way to de- to be Muslim and, and do it, do it harder. yasser or Kadi he's, a, a, he's an odder one. He's kind of an ex Wahhabi, um, uh, still, I think Islamist. Um, but, uh, his view is more, more of a political one saying that America should change, should change its foreign policy. Um, but yeah, the, the idea that Islam should be reformed, um, we have to be careful as non-muslims talking about this because we don't really have any standing to 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 call for this in any specific way we can say we don't like it when terrorists do bad things that we're fine that's 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 a reasonable point of view to have um but to say that that the religion itself should be changed. When we don't believe in any form of the religion, um, makes it uh, makes anything we say kind of um, unreasonable and 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 sophistic or or cynical. The dynamics, though, of reform I think are, are what we really could um, really should start to understand a bit better. Um, ISIS says we shouldn't reform the religion. We should go back to 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 what it was, um, so that's one sense of what reform is—trying to make religion new, seeing a, a, a way for it to be new in the in the modern day. But then remember, from the perspective of Hamza Yusuf, ISIS is the reformer. That's the whole problem: is that ISIS has tried to reform the religion by taking it out of the the, the, the context of it of it, the last thousand years of tradition, and instead trying to uh, to replicate it. To replicate the the earliest days of the religion in a very modern and breaking with tradition that that is the last thousand years of tradition kind of way. So, if you call for reform in Islam, you might not like what you get. ISIS is the reformation in Islam. What we, I think, what what we as as largely secular people in the West uh, are really hoping we find is something more like uh, a a Muslim enlightenment, perhaps in a, in a kind of Stephen Pinker kind of enlightened sense of enlightenment kind of way where we're thinking about the, the, the cosmopolitan values, the, the, um, reliance on science and evidence. And that's something that, that, um, the good news is many Muslims have, um, have signed up for, um, like just as many Christians have signed up for it. Uh, the, the bad news is that, that. As a movement, just away from the faith, away from from Islam, uh, we we don't really have much control over that. It's not something that that large numbers of Muslims have have been that interested in. And as outsiders, we could hope for it, but we don't have the the standing to to, to cause it to happen.
0: Yeah, I kind of exemplify this. So people, because people, when they think of Islam and they don't really understand the branches or what's involved. I tell them, well, imagine there's a Protestant in Japan who only speaks Japanese, and he goes on Japanese TV and he and he says, "I'm going. I want to propose we reform the Catholic Church from here." <laughs> um, if I describe this person, you know, campaigning to, a Protestant to reform the Catholic Church from the Pope down all over the world. And change all its values from as far as homosexuality and contraception, etc.
1: You wouldn't even know where to begin to to respond to that to that suggestion. It's it's very much the the same. People will ask me, you know, does ISIS have Islam right? Uh, should should ISIS practice Islam a different way? And for, from my perspective, I say, well, you know, I think ISIS should probably. I don't like what ISIS does, but when i say that i don't like isis it's not because i don't think it's doing islam right or doing islam wrong i think it's because i don't think pe- people should be should be killed wantonly for for their beliefs i don't think people should be enslaved ever and we 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 the idea that that a that a journalist who's not writing as a muslim might have a view on these things a normative view of islam is uh Really, kind of crazy, and we wouldn't accept it for other religions. But uh, in Islam, you know, we're we're called upon to have opinions about how Muslims should be all the time. I, I'm supportive of anyone who who wants to uh, you know, who wants to reform the faith in the kind of happy sense that that puts it in line w- w- with universal human values. Um, but I, I don't have any uh, illusions about my ability uh, as a journalist not writing as a Muslim to to support that you know in a way that should matter to anybody,
0: right? Is there anything you want to tackle in the future as far as the subject of Islam? Are you going to keep uh, studying and investigating terrorism and terrorist groups, or are there other aspects you wanted uh, to study and investigate?
1: Yeah, I I, I um, I'm still on the same beat. I still write about ISIS. I still write about about. Uh, islam the islamic world um from a both religious and political perspective so i i'm i'm not done with that yet i have also though over the years written about many other things and i'm sure at some point this will cease to be the most fascinating thing in the world but that point hasn't yet come we still have you apart from isis uh which still has territory and adherence all over the world um we also have extraordinary developments in places like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, that um, we just don't understand nearly well enough. Um, just watching the way that ISIS has, has been covered, I, th- I think revealed to me a lot of ignorance and naivete uh, on my own part and on the part of many others about the region. And you know, when, when you see what could happen in the next 50 years. And that includes the possibility of the resurgence of ISIS in a more virulent form. Uh, you, you can't not be, be uh, as a journalist, eager to, to investigate and know more about, about how that's going to happen. I, this is a struggle that will continue for the rest of our lives. Uh, and I'm definitely not going to leave the, the field of observation quite yet.
0: hmm well, I, okay, I don't want to take up too much of your time, Graham. If yeah, uh, no, oh, it's been if, fun. <laughs> yeah, um, I wanted to add, um, when I was reading your book, there was something you were describing, and there's a term for it when you were hanging out with a lot of uh these ISIS people, and they were kind of uh, they actually had texts that about how to treat you and to take you on pit, picnics and things like that, and I I don't know if you if you heard the term love bombing.
1: Uh, no, 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 okay, you should
0: look this up <laughs> love bombing it's a it's a term done and I think the term was was coined by the unification church, the moonies I'm sure you're familiar <laughs> with yes, yes and um I heard this first from a Christian girl who was in a Christian cult on my podcast and I looked it up and it was it was a term from from the moonies and it's essentially exactly that it's called love bombing where they try to get you into the 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 fold and the the group by just showering you with love especially at the beginning i thought it was a good term love bombing
1: it's a very useful one and it, it accurately describes the way that isis and every other cult tries to get people in They don't people don't join cults because they promise nothing but suffering that they have to promise some kind of happiness and and um yeah camaraderie which it was definitely extended to me. I, I happened to be a pretty happy guy in general and, you know, I'm quite fulfilled in my life. And so I didn't feel this, this, this horrible, uh, spiritual lacuna for them to, to, to fill with their love. But, um, that's how they do it. I mean, I, I was, uh, after I wrote the book, the writer, Tom Holland in the UK brought to my attention, uh, a very interesting essay by the historian, Jonathan Riley Smith, called um crusading as an act of love um it was an interpretation of the of the crusades which was pointing out you know we think of the crusades or crusades in general as fighting and that was certainly part of it um, but you're not going to understand them just as you won't be able to understand isis and what isis is doing without understanding it as also a weird and twisted act of love and that is the the belief that they're part of something wonderful, part of something great. They want to bring it to you, to me. They want us to be part of it. They want us to be saved the way that they have. And their desire for that is—it's not just a pose. I can't speak for the Unification Church. With the ISIS people I spoke to, you know, I—I I dare say we kind of enjoyed each other's company, and they. Didn't like the idea that I would be eternally be suffering, or that I might uh, have to get my head cut off. They would much prefer that uh, I be their friend and that I enjoy the benefits of paradise with them.
0: There was a moment in your book where you talked about—I um, forget the name of who it was—but at some point you described that you had been hanging out with him and talking with him for a few months, I believe, and. At some point, I think he said almost in a, almost a friendly way that I hate you and, but still he liked you, but he hated you for not being in Islam. How did you, how did you feel about the people you encountered spending so much time with them? And I'm sure you probably liked these people on some level, despite the really egregious beliefs they had. So, so things that kind of defy even the morality programming in our brain that we we just at the same time we think we can't like somebody who thinks like this. But I'm sure in in another level you're like, well, I do like this person though.
1: Did that happen yeah, to you all the time? Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it, it 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 really does mess with your kind of inherent sense that if if someone has horrible awful beliefs is a nazi is a racist that you can't be friends with them mm. and you know th- that's that's something that i i just would have assumed is true but it, both my own experience and then every piece of considered evidence i've looked at suggests that it's not that you know people who have horrible beliefs are often enjoyable to be around maybe at the same rate as people who don't have horrible beliefs and the very fact of their horrible beliefs means maybe you have to cut them off and it's more difficult to cut them off because they're, they're, they're pleasant company. But a, a lot of the experience of talking to supporters, ex-supporters of ISIS, is getting one's head around the the psychology of what what might lead an otherwise decent, intelligent person to do among the more indecent things that a person could do, namely supporting a genocidal death cult. Um, the, the kind of secondary surprise to noticing this dynamic though, is that ISIS knows it. They know that they are um, repugnant to, to someone like me. And they also know that there are people in their ranks who, you know, could have a, pleasant conversation with someone like me. We, we could share the same taste in movies and, and you know, we could share the same taste in food. And yet I find them, uh, disgusting and they have a mutual feeling toward me. So ISIS has then kind of, um, they've engineered a recruitment process with that in mind. They know that, that what they have to do in getting someone to join them is to in, hurt the person's moral sense uh they know that they have to, to to take it and flip it exactly around so that what seems like the worst thing might actually be the best and this is a surgical process that that they and other cults have have developed and it's one that that i was subjected to and and, and describe as you know at, at some length in my book
0: you had no fear that you were at any time kind of falling for maybe some things subconsciously and realized it later, anything like that? Or do you, do you find you you're pretty at, apt at re- rejecting that? I myself w- was never religious, so I haven't kind of almost automatic rejection to those kind of groups and that kind of group think, uh, do you have that same kind of barrier <laughs> where you can block that?
1: Uh, I have a, a, highly developed barrier where I can block such things. And let me, I mean,
0: even outside of ISIS, like, uh, just in general, yeah, I, that kind of group thing
1: I've reported on and just spent time among cults before, um, I've been subjected to, uh, hard sells by cults more than the average person. Let's just say, so, um, I'm, I'm, I'm better at it, better at resisting it than, than some. Um, you know, if you walk through a souk in Egypt or in Turkey, uh, and you've never been through a kind of hard sell environment like that, and you're accosted by people, you're going to probably walk out of that souk having bought something you didn't want just to just to get. Oh, I'm from Latin America. I know
0: exactly what you're talking about. Those people were just like accost you to to sell you something. I'm very- <laughs> I get American friends coming to visit to me to Chile, and they they walk down the street and they end up. With a bunch of junk in their hands, buying stuff. I'm like, you gotta, you gotta toughen up, man.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I, what, what I would, what I would caution you against as someone who is not religious, is that that's you. You're the turista in in this world. If you ever get subjected to this this kind of thing, if you're someone who has a pre-existing religious commitment, you've got the software on on your mind to to resist the entreaties of of, of ISIS. If you're someone who is unfamiliar with that kind of cell, then then it's much more dangerous for you. So if when ISIS hears you say, not a religious person, not, not really into this kind of thing, they think this is our prey. We, we can't wait to get, to, to get you. I'm not saying you are specifically going to be. Yeah, eating, in the uh, book you describe how they
0: oh. <laughs> prefer a person who's, who is completely non-Muslim Versus a Muslim who's already halfway there. They find it easier to prey on completely non-Muslims
1: Yes, that that is correct. So I I Think some people um, particularly people who, who are skeptical of atheists in general will say aha well this shows that atheists are actually just kind of like a, a bizarro world version of Isis that's not so it, it's a very specific kind of of um, vulnerability that Non-religious people have to the religious because they're just not used to 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 being in that milieu and to have that that uh, those sections of their brain operated upon by by skilled recruiters. I usually um, so find that it.
0: most uh, converts usually come from a religious background of some form of Christianity or something like that. Rarely, they're they were born they were complete atheists prior to joining Islam. At least as far as I. I've seen with conversations and videos. I don't have any statistic on it.
1: You know, I, I've seen both. I, mm-hmm. I, so yeah, there there might be a kind of bimodal distribution that we're we're talking about, where there's some religious people who become other types of religious, and then there's some people who are not religious at all. Um, so yeah, could be could be either way. I, I think there's there's probably already some um, sociological typology of of how this works, but I haven't uh, haven't studied it yet.
0: Since I have you, there's one question that it's, it's minuscule. It's not really important, but it's been (laughs) bugging the hell out of me for years. Why do you think Obama continuously said ISIL instead of ISIS, even though it lacked popularity in the media? It's not (laughs) important, but I just, it just kind of drove me crazy.
1: Yeah. uh, That's, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I, I think maybe it's a function of how slowly, um, (laughs) <laughs> how slowly bureaucracies change once they once they figure out how they want to name things they don't they don't change quickly. I kind of like ISIL um, because people thought that ISIS stood for the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. It actually stood for the Islamic State in Iraq and Sham, and Sham is more closely coextensive with the Levant than it is with Syria. So ISIL kind of got a little bit closer to the to the, to the the point. Um, it also had, um, <laughs> to my surprise, when I started writing about ISIS, calling it ISIS, I had a number of people writing in saying, you know, I named my daughter ISIS after the Egyptian god, oh, no. and <laughs> I would really appreciate your not calling it ISIS. Call it the, the Islamic State, call it Daesh, call it ISIL, um, but don't call it ISIS. There are companies that had to be renamed because they called themselves ISIS. Yeah. And it might have been polite to try to, Push for for ISIL, but you know, in in my everyday speech, I call it the Islamic State. And um, yeah, I I, <laughs> I also try to avoid spending too much time on issues of nomenclature when there's substantive things that we could be talking about instead.
0: <laughs> Definitely. Um. Well, thank you so much, Graham Wood, for being on my podcast. Uh, Graham has a lot of articles on the Atlantic. And his book is The Way of the Strangers Encounters with the Islamic State. And I both got the book and the audiobook. And Graham does the voice for the audiobook. And he has a great voice, very soothing, very good. A lot of audiobooks do not have good voices, so they're just unlistenable. So I, I suggest either or both. Um, is there anything else you want to add to that?
1: No, thank you so much, Lolo. I, I, I've had a great time talking with you.